0: Welcome back to The Life Inspired. It is, what is today? Oh my gosh, I think it's Monday. Wow, welcome back everyone. And today we are talking about true crime. I really feel like this is one of the biggest crazes that has taken over American culture in the last two or three years. And I like it because there's definitely something that you can learn in every case that you listen to. But it also does a lot of good in that because of true crime podcasts and TV shows, a lot of innocent people have had convictions overturned and a lot of unsolved uh, criminal cases have been solved. So it does a lot of good for society as much as it entertains the people that listen. And if you didn't get into true crime during COVID, then did you even actually go through the pandemic? So today I'm excited that we're going to be doing a true crime episode. We're going, we have a case uh, we're going to be going through, and we have a special guest who is a police supervisor for a medium sized city police department with a crime index of one, which we'll get into in a second. Um, this guest has years of full-time police work under his belt, as well as experience in the fire department and national guard, including a recent deployment in a major metropolitan area. And before police work, he was a 911 dispatcher. He holds a degree in criminal justice and is working on another degree in behavioral psychology. So really qualified to give us an analysis of Kind of the process of bringing criminals to justice because the case that we have today is so wild and so many things were handled wrong and there's still so many questions unanswered that we really need an expert to give us an insight into what all of this means. So, everyone, please welcome Officer Logan. Welcome, Logan.
1: Hey, thanks. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We are, I'm excited about this. I think a lot of the people who are listening to this episode may not have heard a show like this before. So we're going to have to give them uh, a little bit of background, which we'll get into when we do like our lightning round. But overall, you've looked into our case today. Have Right off the bat, before we start, is there anything you think that people need to know about like the process of catching a criminal?
1: Uh, so when it comes to homicides, everything in the modern day that we do now is is more or less fundamentally different than it would have been back, uh, I believe this was in the 80s, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, So the fear of wrongful conviction that you might find in this case isn't really a thing in modern society with with what we have technology advancement-wise now.
0: Okay. On that positive note of homicide investigation, let's jump into the news inspired and read three positive headlines from the week before we start talking about murder. So first and foremost, uh, the CDC has announced that over 67% of US adults are at least partially vaccinated against the COVID-19 and that gets us one step closer to herd immunity. Our second headline for the week is that Joey Chestnut has won his 14th Nathan's Famous 4th of July hot dog eating contest and actually broke, I guess, the world record with 76 hot dogs. Also on the news this week, jobs are rebounding in the U.S. as the economy added over 850,000 jobs in the month of June. This has been The News Inspired, and I hope that these are just the first of many headlines this week that bring a smile to your face and bring you a little bit of joy. Now, as we all know, in this podcast, we talk about things that inspire us. And like I said, true crime really is a tool that the world can use. you know, to, to support the community of uh, law enforcement professionals that are working to bring criminals to justice. So as much as this seems like a very strange thing to be In an inspiration podcast. I'm really excited to jump into this. So before we get into our story, I've asked our resident officer now uh, to do a lightning round with us where he's going to help us define a few terms um, just so that we can kind of get in the mindset of law enforcement. So, the first thing that I wanted to ask you about, Logan, is a uh, crime index. I know that was one thing that you had mentioned to me, and I had never heard of that before. So, what is a crime index?
1: So, your crime index um, is statistical information gathered by most professional police departments. When I say professional, I mean full-time, that report the UCR data to the FBI. Uh, your Uniform Crime Reporting System, your UCR, it, it compiles into what they call a crime index. And in America, you can pretty much look up any city's crime index. And what that is, is it's uh, your crime rate per 1,000 residents. So, for example, the city I work in has a crime rate of 64 per 1,000. And that is, uh, uh, is very high for a smaller size city. And that's just one way that the FBI can help focus resources to different areas and allocate funding.
0: Great. Very positive. Very uplifting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay. Next thing we need to know. This actually kind of plays into the 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 story that we're going to tell today. Can you tell us the difference between a detective and a prosecutor?
1: So your prosecutor. The main difference is a prosecutor is an attorney. Normally, your state's attorney or district attorney. Um, that's your prosecutor. Their office. They're a team of attorneys that are employed by the state or the federal government, and they are the ones that actually prosecute the case. And then your detective, of course, is your seasoned, experienced police officer, normally 10 plus years on the job, uh, um, that go to special classes like crime scene investigation and lead homicide investigator. And they're the ones that actually gather the evidence and uh, file it in a way that the prosecutor
0: can then disseminate and be digested by a jury. Great. Um, our last little thing we need you to define. What is the difference between a murder and manslaughter?
1: So the main difference is uh, homicide or murder. Um, That is pretty much the intentional killing of someone. Um, Manslaughter is a form of homicide, of course, but manslaughter is unintentional. And where it gets kind of blurry is you can have like a voluntary manslaughter, which might be a crime of passion where you kill them without any premeditation, like a husband walks in on a wife cheating. Um, so there's there's different degrees of, of homicide basically, um, like first, second, third degree murder, and every state kind of defines those differently. So it'd be hard to, to define those for everyone that would be listening to this, but that's, that's a general gist of it.
0: Great, right. now we have a groundwork of what this whole I don't know this whole world of law enforcement is let's hop into a story back from 1989 this is the prom night murders so imagine it april 30th 1989 it's a sunday morning in lakeville indiana a tiny little country town the congregation of the Olive Branch Church, a, a local Christian group, has gathered for their regular Sunday services, but they have one problem there's no pastor. So, this church has had a pastor for three years. His name is Bob Pelly, and he and his wife Dawn live in the church parsonage, which is a house that a church owns usually on their property for a pastor and his family to live in. I only know this because I lived in one with my pastor father growing up. And uh, they lived there with Bob's two kids, Jeff and Jackie, as well as Don's three daughters, Janelle, Jolene, and Jessica. Now what's a little bit confusing is that different sources that I used for my research for this episode give different ages for all of the kids. So it's a little bit tricky to give exacts, but generally it's accepted that Jeff is the oldest at 17 and Janelle is the youngest at just five. So uh, Bob's two kids, Jeff and Jackie, they're more high school age. And then Janelle, Jolene and Jessica are younger children. Now on this particular Sunday, April 30th, one of the local church children, her name's Stephanie, and she's around Janelle's age. So she went over to play with the girls before church most Sundays. But this day she found that all of the doors were shut and locked. And the curtains uh, were all drawn to the house, so no one could see in. Um, Obviously, the church members thought this was a little bit weird, but they thought maybe the family had slept in. They were still getting ready. Um, And just because the pastor hasn't shown up yet, I mean, he lives on the church property. That doesn't mean he's not going to be there in time for the service to start. But... The time comes and goes and his family never shows up. And this is a congregation of less than 100 people. So when you have a family of seven missing, including the pastor, people start to suspect something. So some of the church members go over to the house. They see, just like little Stephanie did, that the doors are locked, the windows are closed, um, and they decide that they're going to go in, just wake up the family, make sure everyone's okay. And again, this is another point of uh, difficulty in the research that there's a little bit of discrepancy in what happened next. But someone got a key from one of the church employees that somehow had a key to the parsonage, which is a little suspicious in and of itself, I think. But. It's unclear if they went through the back door and then unlocked the front door, or if they were able to use the key to get in the front door, but eventually one of the men in the congregation is able to get in the front door and the first thing that he sees is Pastor Bob Pelly laying on the ground and he's been shot in the face. There's blood everywhere and Bob is obviously deceased. Now, this is where we have to bring you in Logan because I think if I found this crime scene, I would just stop there. Um, but the church members decided not just one person but many people were going to go into the house. Yeah, does,
1: that's not good at all.
0: Does that create a problem for, <laughs> I mean, the investigators?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I don't know what that small of a town back in those days, um, 1989, I believe it was. I don't mm-hmm. know what they would have had for DNA, but in today's society, today's world, if, uh, if for example, if, if me as a, a patrol officer, if I was to walk in and see that, uh, we would do and we're trained to be um, the least intrusive possible so we what we would do is we would clear the house and we would look for any survivors and that would be stepping over things of importance that would be very meticulously not touching anything putting gloves on um, you send a bunch of civilians into a house to look at a crime scene you contaminate all of the DNA and when you yeah. get more than one or two uh dna hits on something it comes back is inconclusive and you can't
0: use it in court so it's really bad okay it's interesting that you say this that's definitely something to keep in mind as we get into uh this story and the investigation but let's go back to that sunday morning now so the church members decide to go into the house they see their their pastor bob pelly he is dead on the ground in the hallway right off the front door of the parsonage they continue to go into the house they go through the dining room and the kitchen into the basement and what's really creepy for me about this is as i read up on the just kind of layout of the house and i actually listened to another podcast about it um, i watched an episode of 48 hours about it it reminded me a lot of the parsonage i grew up in so i very clearly in my head i'm visualizing how they had to go through this house but um off the kitchen there's a stairway down into the basement and when they go into the basement there they also find dawn uh, bob's wife as well as two of her three daughters janelle and jolene all three have also been shot dead and The two girls actually died in Dawn's arms, and it's a tragic scene. The church members are very shaken, and this is the point when they decide to leave the house without looking any further into it um, and call the police. So after seeing such a, a, a tragic scene, they did decide to do the right thing, finally got the professionals involved. So the police are called in and the first thing that the witnesses now that are there at the, the house are telling them is that there's still three kids missing. Jeff, Jackie, and Jessica, none of them are there. And so the house is searched. There's no trace of these kids. So now you have police officers that are trying to figure out where are these, these three children all under the age of 18 while also uh, they're starting to search the house. And they turn up a few things that they think might be a little bit suspicious. Um, the first is that there is popped popcorn in the kitchen. So they note that it looks like there was at least the intention of um, some sort of snack that was about to happen when the crime took place. They also note that there's men's clothing in the washing machine, which is wet. So it was mid-cycled, at least they think it might've been mid-cycle when the crime was committed. And also church members tell the police officers that Bob keeps a shotgun on the wall in his bedroom. It was actually a gun that was given to Jeff when his mother passed away. Um, She died of natural causes years before. But when the family moved from Florida to Indiana, Jeff had actually attempted, or at least threatened suicide with the shotgun. So his dad had taken it from him until he was an adult and he would give it back um, since it was his mother's before. But so the church members shared this story with the police officers. And one of the first things that the investigators noticed is that there is no gun in the house. So now, we have at least a missing gun, but they're thinking possibly a potential uh, murder weapon. So as they're combing the house and trying to find evidence of what might've happened, I was a little bit surprised about this too. They were able to pull some blood and DNA uh, off of uh, different parts of the house. The house itself isn't actually that shaken up outside of the areas where the bodies were found, where there's a lot of blood splatter. But they're able to collect some of that evidence for processing. And I was a little bit surprised that in 89, they had the ability to test for DNA like that.
1: Yeah, that was right when they were starting some of that technology. Nothing like it is today though.
0: So as they're doing this and they have other officers out trying to find the missing children, they're worried that this might have been a kidnapping but their fears are settled pretty quickly when Jessica actually shows up at the house. She has been at a sleepover with one of her friends. And the, the mother of the friend that she was staying over with uh, was a little late getting Jessica back for church that morning. So when she pulls up to the church slash house property that it's all on, Obviously, they see the crime tape, the police officers, the crowd outside, and they know that something's wrong. And actually, the police tell Jessica's friend's mom what happened. And this poor woman has to communicate to Jessica that her two sisters, her mother and her stepdad um, have all been murdered. But luckily, Jessica is able to share with the police that they don't need to keep searching for Jackie and Jeff because she knows where they are. Jackie had actually spent the weekend at a nearby college for a church camp. And Jeff is at Six Flags Great America as part of the after prom activities because the local prom had been the night before. So police now know where all three of the missing children are. They know that this was not a kidnapping, um, but they obviously now have to figure out what did happen. So they they go to retrieve Jackie and Jeff, and when they get to Jackie, you know she's treated as an orphan and a victim and treated with a lot of compassion and um, the police officers have to tell her what happened. But when they get to Jeff, he's not as much treated as a victim as he is a person of interest. because you see Great America, the amusement park that Jeff was at is several hours from the the Pelly house in Lakeview, Indiana. And while the police are on their way to get Jeff, they're learning a little bit about what had been happening in the house in the days and weeks leading up to this murder. And what they've learned is that Jeff had been in a really serious fight with his dad about prom. It wasn't uncommon for the two to fight again, especially over the last three years since they moved from Florida to Indiana. Jeff was not a fan, but also in the week leading up to this incident, Jeff had stolen some CDs, I guess, from a family friend, and it was a big ordeal. Um, Actually, one of the investigators that was taking the lead on the murder case had been involved in the case of finding out that Jeff had vandalized or at least broken into, and then possibly vandalized and stolen these CDs from this family friend. So they're very well connected with the family, um, but they knew that Jeff and his dad had been in a fight about this. And actually Jeff had been told that he, at first he was told he wasn't even allowed to go to prom, but his his dad and his stepmom really liked Jeff's girlfriend. They wanted him to be able to have a high school experience. So the punishment that they had settled on was that he was not going to be allowed to drive himself to the prom. And he also wasn't going to be allowed to go to Six Flags the next day. His parents were going to take him to the prom. They were going to drop him off and then they were going to pick him and his date up uh, after the events. And he was not actually supposed to be at Six Flags. so. With so many church members knowing this story, with so many of the community members in this tiny town knowing this, and also with Jeff's own stepsister telling them uh, what she knew about the family dynamic, they're automatically a little bit suspicious it even went so far as some of the church members knew that Bob had removed some kind of part from Jeff's car so that it wasn't drivable, but his car was not at the parsonage. So they're assuming that he had not only taken it to prom, but then had also taken it to Six Flags. So when the police officers arrive uh, at Great America, they arrest Jeff and his girl. Well, I take that back. You know this better than I do. If someone is detained does that mean they're arrested or can you be detained without actually being arrested
1: so you can be considered detained without being arrested uh if i approach you on the street and you feel either by the fact that there's three police officers around you or i say something that otherwise feel makes you feel like you're not free to leave you are considered detained under eyes of the law so anything you say during that would technically need to be mirandized if if they could prove that you felt that you were detained
0: okay so i guess a better way to say it would be that jeff and his girlfriend were detained at the six Flags security office by police in the town that the amusement park was in near chicago um and they were held there and not even really told what was going on they were told that there had been an accident that something had happened and that just grandparents were on their way to come get him, but nobody actually even told Jeff that his family had been murdered. But what's really wild here is that his girlfriend actually had a suspicion and asked the police if something had happened to Jeff's family because hours before the police had showed up, Jeff had looked at her very seriously, and told her that something was wrong, that something had happened to his dad and his family, and had had a very solemn few minutes before returning back to his, you know, joyful, like messing around at an amusement park self. So she actually brings up, it, Is there something wrong with his family? And that's when the police take him to a local police station and interrogate him. And then there they inform him. That his family has been murdered. Hmm. Now, Jeff didn't know that his sister was still alive. That's one thing important to keep in mind during this. He, as far as he knew, every member of his family was dead his dad, his stepmom, his three stepsisters, and his biological sister. He did not know that his sister and one of his stepsisters were still alive. And yet he had no remorse when they were talking to him. And the investigators noted how flat and monotone he was talking about his family who, as far as he knew, were all deceased. They talk about some of the assumptions he made, talking about uh, people in his dad's past and how people might've come for him. And investigators automatically flagged this as a red flag and suspected that it might be an indication of a guilty conscience. But I kind of wanted to ask you here what your thoughts on this are too, because, I am obviously not a professional when it comes to interrogation but I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and it seems like no matter what someone does when they're being interrogated it's always taken as suspicious like one big thing that I hear a lot is if you're ever asked to take a polygraph test you should say no because if you get a false positive out of it like it indicates that you're lying Um, that's automatically a red flag, and apparently that happens quite a bit. But also, then if you say, no, I'm not going to take a polygraph, that's suspicious. So I feel like there's a lot of situations like that. So do you think that there's any way that Jeff was kind of like damned if he did, damned if he didn't, with all the emotion that they were expecting him to show?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that is, that's odd, Uh, especially at 17. But I guess if you had a rough family life, I mean, there's no telling what kind of relationship he had with his father. Uh, it would not be the first time that I've told someone that their family's dead or someone in their family has died and they did not react just because of that toxic and, uh, you know, uh, hatred filled home life. Um, would it be a red flag? Probably. Um, but it, also could just be because he really didn't care about his dad due to how the the relationship dynamic was and yet uh polygraphs those yeah those are not fun you have to take those when you become a cop and oh uh it's it's scary because uh there's people that go in and well claim they tell the truth i don't guess i have a way to prove otherwise but it'll come back and say that they showed deceit which is what it, it doesn't say you're lying it says it shows uh, indicators of deceit and uh over something that they told the truth on so yeah i i could see where either way you you go with that it could be um the best thing to do is just ask for an attorney if you're innocent um and just not talk
0: interesting well they have flagged this at jeff and now they're trying to interrogate him and get more information about why was he even at six flags where was his car all of this but back at the parsonage Uh, Investigators are continuing to comb the scene, right? They're taking statements from members of the congregation. We also have to remember that, again, tiny town, tiny church, a lot of the other teenagers who are there on the scene that day for the church service were just with Jeff the night before at prom and were even in the house the night before. Cliffhanger? What cliffhanger? I hope you're really enjoying this episode of The Life Inspired and that true crime is maybe a new fascination that you're discovering. I had a great time chatting with Officer Logan and you can hear the rest of this story next week on our part two of the True Crime series. I do have one very special announcement that I wanted to save for the end of this episode. And that is that we are nearing the end of the season one of The Life Inspired. And this show actually won't be back until 2022. If you can believe it, we are taking a little break to make room for a brand new podcast from our new podcast media company that is in the works and that we'll have another announcement about very soon. But for now, we are saying goodbye to season one of The Life Inspired. We have two more episodes after this week that you can check out right here on The Life Inspired feed on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So please do keep on listening uh, for the next couple of weeks as we continue our journey together. We'll take one week off after that, and then we'll be back with a brand new podcast. You can also check out all other episodes of The Life Inspired. This is our 20th episode, yay, but we have all of our others on Spotify, and most are also on Apple Podcasts for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd so appreciate a five-star review and an... Or wait, no. I always get review and rating mixed up. A five-star rating and a nice review. Um, You can also check us out online at The Life Inspired Pod on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're enjoying this episode or you have ideas for future episodes, you can hit us up in the DMs or feel free to send us an email using the email tab on IG. For now, it's been such a great time chatting with you. I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode and that it helps you to live the life. We are taking a little break to make room for a brand new podcast.